And we understand so little about resurrection. So they show up not to celebrate the empty tomb. They, they show up to go in and anoint the body that they think is still there in the tomb. And these are Jesus' followers. So, you know, getting the resurrection is not the easiest thing on the planet. So this morning, I'm, I'm going to actually back us up away from the resurrection about 1,500 years to see if what God has to say to us 1,500 years before the resurrection can help us get the resurrection and Resurrection Sunday. And I'm doing this for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we're, we're starting a study of the book of Exodus, and so we're going to start that this morning. And so if you're not normally attending with us and, and you're curious, what, what's this book of Exodus about? It's a great study, and I'm very excited about what we're going to learn in it. I find it interesting this week provided some some good fodder for studying the book of Exodus, and it was part of the reason why I felt the Lord was leading us to it. But even if you follow the news at all, there's lots of religious freedom issues that are in the news this week, right? A lot of noise being made about how does a plural society, a bunch of people with different ideas all come together, live in the same space, and try and get along with each other and make up rules that everybody's going to be cool with. You know, when you read the book of Exodus, you've got to remember the book of Exodus, right? You've got Moses, burning bush. You've got all these miracles. You've got a rescue thing taking place. You've you got this gathering at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and down from the mountain comes Moses. And it'll be on, Cecil B. DeMills will be on TV, I'm sure, tonight if you don't know anything that I'm talking about. But isn't it interesting, when God goes to form community, God does it this way. He reveals himself to people as God, and then he speaks to them about who they're going to be. That's God's pattern. And quite honestly, that, that's what makes it work. Now today, we got our hands full because we live in, I believe in an American society that's, that's got freedoms to it, that people have the freedom to believe and to do what they uh, have their own desires and convictions to do. But when you, when you empower people, not God to speak to people, but you empower all the people to create all the laws, welcome to what we have. And it's inescapable. But there's something in Exodus we get to discover as we study through this, that, that God's order for humanity wasn't for him to step out of the picture and then you guys figure it out on your own. God's order for humanity was to introduce all of them to himself and then to impose, is the best word I think, on us life and his ways. And that makes it work for all of us. And so we're going to step back here and we're going to learn something uh, about Exodus but we're going to learn something about what Exodus has to do with, with Easter. I think I'm supposed to be running my own show here, so let's see. What's the Exodus got to do with Easter, right? We're going to look at signs on the way to Easter morning that God has put in place for us in Scripture. But, you know, it's common today for us. I need that monitor to be turned on so I can see what I'm doing uh, this is, these are common Bible mistakes that we make. We come to the scriptures and we open them up and part of the reason why we can't get pieces of it is because we just don't understand what's this book about? Why, why does this book have what's in it the way it does? So we kind of think of the Bible as this proverb a day approach to living. It's sort of like somebody strung together a bunch of fortune cookie sayings and stuck them in the Bible one after another. And so you just open up the Bible, kind of a magic eight ball approach to the scripture. You just open it up and put your finger down and say, hey, here's my verse for the day. 
uh, okay, but that's not how the Bible was written for us. Or, or maybe you come to the Bible with the thought that this is kind of the, the ultimate human morals manual, right? You never hear the phrase, the moral of the story. And the moral of the story is, well, we come to the Bible that way as though God strung together a bunch of stories and he stuck them all over the Bible. And at the end, they're, they're about the moral of the story. So we have, you know, things like David and Goliath. What's David and Goliath about? Well, the moral of the story is that little people can take on big things if they just believe. Isn't that the moral of the story? Isn't that why we have David and Goliath? Little David and big giant Goliath. And at the end of the story, the little guy wins. And the reason why we have that is to inspire all of us to do big things. Is that why that's there? And there's, I'm sure that there's a Disney movie, and then there's a theme song that comes out, and you can buy little pieces and stuff and celebrate this theme. Or, or maybe the story of Jonah, you know. What's the moral of the story there? Well, God wrote the story of Jonah so that we can read it so we can all learn you can't run from your problems. That's why Jonah's there, right? But, you know, we come to the Bible, and that's how we feel these stories are sitting there waiting for us. Or, or maybe just... The Bible's just a bunch of folklore, just gathered together stories about history or maybe history, fictional history, kind of the epic of Gilgamesh sort of approach to gathering a bunch of ideas or the, the Iliad and the Odyssey or, you know, maybe Gulliver's Travels kind of, that's what this is. It's just a bunch of stories that people gathered from all over the place and stuck them in the Bible. Well, no, that, that's not really what the Bible is. It's an interesting insight. This theologian wrote about... Exodus, and he, he said this. He says, when men believe that there is a God who orders and disposes the, the affairs of the human race. Right? Just stop right there for a second. What, that, this is what most people believe, by the way. When most people come to their lives with some system of belief, we believe that there is a God, and we believe that that God interacts with life. We may not understand it. We may not all agree on how he does that, but, but this is why we get mad at God. Because we're looking around, our life doesn't work, there's pain in it, there's diagnosis like cancer taking place, and we want to take God to court because we believe he is involved. Right? If God's detached or he's just like the force in Star Wars and he's really far removed from things, well, no, nobody's taking the God like that to task. We take God to task and we get mad at God. As a matter of fact, maybe you're here today on Easter and you hadn't been in church for a while because you've been mad at God. Well, why are you mad at God? Well, because I believe he's involved and I don't like the way he's running things, right? So we believe this stuff, that this God is involved in the affairs of the human race and he's working these things according to his own good pleasure. Well, the Exodus, this story in the Old Testament, stands out as the most significant of his mighty acts until his own entry into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. In the story of in the Old Testament, Exodus has pride of place even over the creation. Right? If you read the Old Testament, certainly the Bible gives God credit for creating everything that exists. And the Bible highlights that. And it's an important, important point. It tells us where we came from. But if you were to add up pound for pound all the verses that speak of creation and all the verses that speak of Exodus, Exodus wins. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about this story of Exodus in the Old Testament. Well, Mr. Nixon here, theologian, goes on and says, this may be explained by the fact that the belief 
in God the Creator, is in Israel dominated by the message of salvation by God in history, the Exodus story. Israel's God is a God of salvation, a Savior. This is the great moment at which Yahweh, the personal name for God in the Old Testament, is revealed as who he truly is. Right, so why study Exodus and, and what does Exodus have to do with Easter? Well, that last little line from Mr. Nixon there says, Israel's God is a God of salvation. Of all the things that you imagine God to be, and I've heard all kinds of descriptions this week about God in the news. It's amazing how everybody becomes a theologian. They definitely know what they don't believe, and they definitely don't like those people imposing their beliefs, so in response, they impose their own beliefs, and they define who God is. And whatever you came in here today believing about God, this is what the Bible declares about God. This is why this story of Exodus is emphasized over and over and over again. It's why you have any knowledge at all about this story of Exodus, because God is a God of salvation. This is the great moment at which Yahweh is revealed as who he truly is. Who truly is this God? Well, he's the God of salvation. That's what he is. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, the God of the Bible is a God of salvation, and if that's the case, what's that mean for us? Our lives, our needs, our problems, the solutions to our problems, our happiness, and our well-being. What does it mean to us if God is a God of salvation? Because those are the categories in which we live our lives, aren't they? Those are the things that matter the most to us, right? So we're trying to answer this question. What's Exodus got to do with Easter? And, and quite honestly, Easter and Exodus can seem pretty far removed from real life, can't they? I mean, you came in here this morning. Right now it's Easter morning, so Easter's got a lot of noise going on in the world. But there's a lot of noise in your own life, isn't there? Every one of us are living this pretty simple approach to life, but boy, it's complicated to pull it off. Here's the pretty simple approach to life. Every one of us get up every day trying to fight and wrestle with the activities of our lives, the relationships of our lives, the events of our lives, and we're trying to wrestle them underneath the umbrella of happy. That's all we want, isn't it? Don't you just want to be happy? Anybody here not want to be happy? I'm just curious. <laughs> right? I just want to take whatever it is that defines my existence in my life, and I just want to, just want to shove it underneath the umbrella of happy. Man, is, is that so complicated? Well, apparently it is, isn't it? It's like the hardest thing in the world to pull off. But we, just, we want happy friendships. We want happy marriages. We want happy jobs and careers. Heck, we, some of us would just settle for a happy weekend, right? We just live weekend to weekend. I just want a happy weekend, for goodness sake. I want a happy vacation. I want to travel. I want to get away from all the pain in the butt. And just want to have a happy vacation. All of us would love to have happy health. And the older you get, the more that becomes a bigger priority, right? I just want happy health. I just want my body to get along and do better than it's doing right now. What's the escape from Egypt story got to do with that? 
What's this Roman crucifixion about a carpenter from Nazareth got to do with that? I just, Keith, I just want to be happy, man. Well, it's interesting. The Bible's all over that subject. And therefore, Exodus and Easter are all over that subject. Here's an interesting thought. Paul Tripp wrote a book called What Did You Expect? It's actually a book about marriage. He said, we mistakenly treat the Bible as if it were arranged by topic. You know, the world's best compendium of human problems and divine solutions. But the Bible isn't an encyclopedia. It's a story. The great origin to destiny story of redemption. This means that we cannot understand what the Bible has to say about marriage or really about anything by looking only at the marriage passages because there's a vast amount of biblical information about marriage not found in the marriage passages. In fact, we could argue to the degree that every portion of the Bible tells us things about God, about ourselves, about life in this present world and about the nature of the human struggle and the divine solution, to that degree, every passage in the Bible is a marriage passage. Rich, well, can I just transfer that? Maybe marriage isn't your issue this morning. Every passage in the Bible is a happiness passage. You, you want happy relationships? Well, the Bible's about that. You want a happy weekend? The Bible's about that. The Bible addresses happy health and happy marriages, happy jobs. It addresses everything that we're fighting so hard to figure out how to get. But you might need to learn how to look in the Bible and find what it's about. It's a story. It's a story about our origin and our destiny. And along the way, we meet God and we meet ourselves. And God uses these settings to reveal to us that he is a God of salvation, which screams at us, we have something to be saved from. Did we come in here this morning realizing I have a need to be saved from something? I mean, I've got all kinds of needs, but I have a need to be saved from something. And the God in the Bible is a God of salvation. And the book of Exodus is trying to tell that story. Right? Here's... Here's Exodus in one sentence. Exodus tells the story of God's rescue of his people out of bitter enslavement in Egypt. For 430 years they were there. And his bringing them into relationship with himself. Right? That's Exodus in one sentence. Now, if I was, you know, if Exodus, well, Exodus was a movie recently, wasn't it? From what I understand, it was a great distortion of the book of Exodus, but uh, we will try and visit a little more clearly here. here. Here'd be the movie trailer, right? If Exodus were a movie, chapter 6, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 8, which is what we're going to look at today, would be the movie trailer for the movie Exodus. And so we're just going to get a quick look. I think we are here. There we go, in case you don't have a Bible. Let's read the passage here. Let's read the trailer quickly. Verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I, I did not make myself known to them. When you see the Lord in the Old Testament, 
It, it, it is the, the personal name of God, Yahweh. It gets translated into Jehovah, which is made into the word the Lord in our translation. But this is God's personal name. Verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, these words written down so many years ago, well, they're just not random stories. Well, they are your preserved insights. And Lord, you're, you're not just interested in us learning about the deserts of Egypt and the people who dress different, talk different, and live different than we do. Lord, you are interested in us learning about you and learning about ourselves and learning about life and why it doesn't work and, and what kind of help do we need in this world. And why is Easter such an important moment in that story? God, that's, that's what we have before us. Help in those areas. So, Lord, give grace to our meeting this morning. God, open your word and open our lives to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you've seen Exodus. That's the trailer. You've seen it in a sentence. Here's Exodus in a nutshell, right? When we come to this story, there is God... There is Egypt in this story. There's a salvation and rescue. There's a covenant relationship, and there's a promised land. I'm going to go through this quickly, but I want us to just get a taste for each one of these. And why does God include this? Because when you look through Scripture, you're going to find these elements are everywhere. Right, so this is not unique to Exodus, but it's very clear made from this story. So first, God. There's a God to be known in this passage, right? He, he comes right out, and he tells them. He says, Make this known to the people of Israel. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. So here people just minding their own business, and all of a sudden God appears to them, and he makes himself known to them. Now that's interesting. It's interesting, especially as I listen to people this week talk about God and what God was like and how God wants to deal with religious freedoms and what God's opinion is about people who practice and behave in certain ways, etc. And everybody was a specialist on God. It was amazing how different God was at the end of the newscast. So many different descriptions about God. And listen, maybe you've been in a place where you bump into ideas about God and you hear preachers and you hear people on TV and you got a relative who you just don't like his personality plus he talks about the Bible and so it's doubly bad. And 
you interact with that and your response is, that's not the God that I know. That's not my God. All right, well, before we give each other permission to have our own gods, all right, what does this Bible passage tell us? Right? If, if God exists, and this Bible passage teaches that he does, and that he appears to people, and then he makes himself known to them, well, well, then this God is knowable. You can know God. You know, the agnostic who stands and says, I, I don't know that you can even know that there's a God, much less what he's like. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Because maybe you and I are limited in our ability to get stuff, but this Bible teaches that God makes himself known. God steps into human experience and he reveals himself to us. Now, if God is knowable, then that means there's something about him that already exists to be known. Right, so can, can we all take ourselves off of the step where we come with this idea that, well, I believe God is like this, and I believe God is like this, and my God would never do something like this. Uh, okay. But God already exists. You don't get to invent him. Right? I mean, maybe you're a guest here today. Before you came in here, uh, you didn't know who was preaching. You know, I'm not famous. You couldn't have looked me up somewhere and bumped into me anywhere anyway. But uh, I already existed before you got here. You know, if you wanted somebody taller, more handsome, sorry. Right? I mean, I am who I am. Uh, God already exists. Before you and I decide we want to go figure out who he is, before we, li- we create our favorite list of items that we would like a God to be like what? X, Y, and Z. We would like, God, you know, we would like a God who is loving. We, you know, in the news this week, we would like a God who doesn't discriminate against anyone. Right? That was a top priority in the news this week. God doesn't discriminate. We would like a God who is just chock full of mercy, forgiveness, and patience. I mean, I, that sounds like a good deal so far, right? You can love those things all you want, but you don't get to come to the, you know, to the, this, this isn't like Build-A-Bear, you know? You don't get to come to the Build-A-God store in the mall and say, you know, I, I don't want any of that, you know, that judgment stuff. It's a harsh color. Can you leave that alone? I don't, no, I don't want that. My bear is not that way. You, this isn't Build-A-Bear. This is God. He already exists. So at best, all you and I get to do is discover God. We don't get to invent him and say what he's like. We're going to meet this address called Egypt in Exodus as we study through it. All right, there's a place in life called Egypt. And I'm not just talking about a sandy desert place with pyramids and stuff like that. There's a place in life called Egypt. And when people live in this place... The vocabulary words of their life are in this passage, right? They're words like enslavement and burdens and groaning and cries. Harsh, difficult conditions of life exist in this place called Egypt. And Interestingly, the Bible is going to introduce us to the fact that this is the address of every human being. Now, this is a story specific in this incident as we studied through Exodus. But in a lot of real ways, all of us live in Egypt. All of us know what it is for life to feel like a burden, for us to feel enslaved and controlled by things in our lives. 
things that have to do with our personalities, things that have to do with habits and addictions, and things that have to do with control that none of us seem to be able to escape. And I'm not, I don't like this. I'm just telling you it like it is. I don't like hearing the fact that my neighbor's got a relative who's 62 years young facing cancer that more than likely would take his life. I don't like hearing that. You see, that's the burden of Egypt that no one gets to escape. Right? You know, your diagnosis just hasn't been given to you yet, perhaps, but you got one like that coming. Egypt is going to impose on you a controlling day when it says you got multiple sclerosis, you've got diabetes. And you got no control over that. That's what enslavement's like. When the life that you have, you have lost control of it, and it forces you to be something that you wish you weren't. That's enslavement. And everybody lives at the address of enslavement. And the story of Exodus tells a story about salvation, right? This God of salvation brings rescue and deliverance. It's the theme that touches the whole story in Exodus, and it touches our life story as well. By the time God steps into this moment, the, the Israelites have been in Egypt, enslaved for 430 years. Enslaved for 430 years. I don't know how you are, but you know, after about day one, I might be believing, well, things could change, right? This is temporary, honey. We can do this. After a week, after a month, maybe I'm like one of those glass half full kind of guys. And after a year even, it's going to turn around, honey. The Pharaoh's going to change his mind and going to start treating us nice again. After a couple of years, you started getting gray and your back started to hurt from the harsh conditions. At some point, you have given in to the fact that this ain't going to change. This is permanent. 430 years later, they're still not free from it. Do you think it's not because they didn't want to be free? So this is the interesting thing about the conditions in Egypt. You can want to be free all you want. I'm sure they tried to be free. I mean, come on, they're people, right? They got sick of being enslaved. And yet, in their efforts to be free, they still couldn't be free. 430 years later, they're still crying out, trying to get out from underneath something they can't get free of. And in steps the God of salvation. The God who is the only one with the power to rescue us from those kinds of conditions. And he does. Right? That's the story of Exodus. And then he grabs his people and he brings them to himself. And he connects with them in a covenant relationship. Right? He, God, you know, if, you, if all you know about the Exodus is fireworks and frogs everywhere and judgment and crossing red seas and wow the book of exodus uh, we kind of miss the main point because the main point of the book of exodus is not to just get people out of bad situations although if you don't sort of see god correctly that's what you think this story is about now this story is about god bringing a people to himself where do they go after they get out oh they just wander build condos hang out do a little beach action along the Mediterranean? No, no, where did they go? God rescues them out of Egypt and he brings them to himself and he establishes a covenant relationship with them. 
a, a relationship of his faithfulness and his promise and his care and his love and who he's going to be. Remember, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. You're going to belong to me. You know what's interesting? I, I love that phrase and I love how it touches something that every one of us, whether you're aware of it or not, live in this category. When you and I wake up in the morning, we locate ourselves and our lives and how well it's going by, by who we belong to, how we fit in, who's bound to us and who are we bound to, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a young person, you're in a household, you have a family, that family setting means something to you. Finding a spouse, a person who will, who will abandon everything else and join their life to yours for the rest of their life. That means something to you, doesn't it? It says something to you that's important and valuable. I mean, you can, be the, you can be a high school student begins to not kind of think their family's all that cool, so belonging to something else becomes attractive for some reason. So even belonging to a team, I mean, you're freaked out. you got ulcers in your stomach because you don't know if you're going to make the team. You don't know if the gang at school is going to accept you. Why does that bother us so much? Because we are people made for relationship, not just any relationship, a covenant relationship. That's going to weather the storm. That's going to be faithful. It's going to be with us to the end. Don't make this mistake. And I think this is what Exodus is trying to help us with. These people had relationships with each other. What they needed was a covenant relationship with God. And so you and I got lots of relationships in our lives. But yet there's still something that we long for. Because in this story, we long for a covenant connection with God. And the last thing in this story is the promised land. Right? I'm, I'm going to give this land to you, God says. There's this wonderful land of milk and honey. Now, their experience with land is the misery of slavery. God says, no, 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 it's not like that. I'm going to give you your own land, and it's an incredibly blessed land. I'm going to start a new day in your lives. There's coming into your life this future promise. And that's what the whole promised land is about. It's, it's God, if you will, dangling a carrot. It's God giving them the incentive of the future. Your Future has a hope in it, is what God says to people. Right now, just, you know, without getting too far into the story, can, can you find yourself in this story already? You find that you live in these categories? I know I live in these categories. I know when I look at my life sometimes, I need some kind of a reminder, and it might need to be from outside of the land of Egypt, that, that there's a God who personally cares about me, and that there's a God who wants to give me his promises. He has something in the future that he's calling good. Right now, it doesn't feel real good. But I, I know there's a hope. This is temporary. That's permanent. Right? This is what Exodus communicates to us. But, but, but what's that got to do with Easter? Right? What, what, how is that connected to Easter? Well, when you read the Bible... Right? Remember what it is. It's, it's, you know, it's not a proverb a day. It's not a bunch of moral stories about how to be like Moses. Moses is a great leader story. We'll learn some morals about how to be a great leader. No. This is trying to take us somewhere. The story of Exodus, like all the other stories, are trying to take us somewhere. In the Bible, all roads lead to Easter. All roads. All stories. All characters. All geographic locations, they lead to Easter, right? God is a God of salvation. Every story, event, and book in Scripture sits under this purpose. It is revealing something about God, our current condition, our need, and the remedy, right? Every 
story leads to the same address. It leads to Easter. I mean, you've never thought Exodus is about Easter. Oh, no, it's very much about Easter. Now, you, you guys remember before, before Google Maps? Like you guys remember back, you're driving in a car. You're, you're young. You're asking your parents, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Uh, especially if they've gone to a place that they don't really know where they're going either, and they've read a map. You guys remember these maps? If, if you learn to read a map, because I was kind of like the map reader in my family. So we'd pull out, unfold these maps. I'd find kind of where we were. And then you learn that there were these numbers written all over the place, crazy little numbers. And you, eventually you learn that that's the distance between this city and that city. You know, that's why that little number's there. But, you know, if you weren't a map reader, you were desperately waiting for the next sign on the high that, that would tell you. New Orleans, 126 miles. Oh, okay, I know where I am. That's how much farther we have to go. Like if you're on going on vacation and you're totally unfamiliar with the setting and you're a kid and are we there yet? How much farther? And your parents don't know because they're not reading the map. They're driving the car. They just know stay on this highway. They don't know how far we are. And then the sign comes, Orlando, 180 miles. Oh, it's like I know where I am now, right? Well, you know, highways are built with a purpose, our highways are going somewhere. You know, nobody just got bored one day and just decided, I don't know, let's just throw some random roads out there. You know, you just get on it, you just drive, and just all of a sudden it just comes to an end. It was just all about a pleasant journey to nowhere. Highways take us to a destination. That's why they're there. Well, when you open the Bible up, all these stories are, are like highways, and they all take us somewhere. They all take us to Easter. So no matter where you are in the Bible, the Bible's trying to locate that this story takes you and it points to Easter. So you're traveling down the highway. Here's a nice Roman road. First sign you come to is now departing Eden. Easter, this way. All right, that's what that sign would have said. This is an archaeological discovery. Um, all right, so as man exits the Garden of Eden. Now, if, you, if you're familiar at all with the Garden of Eden story, Right, there, there was all kinds of stuff that happened in the Garden of Eden, right? There's animals that get slain, and there's skins that cover man's guilt there. There's judgment in the Garden of Eden. There's prophecies about a, a coming servant who would crush the serpent's head, that bad guy who started all this mess. But there's coming a day, right? Road signs. Eden was pointing to Easter. Right When Jesus Christ is on the cross, underneath his heel, now you might think there's a nail through his wrist, but underneath his heel is the head of the serpent. Right? This sign was pointing to that. Later down the road, now entering the story of Noah. Right? You eventually, you keep reading, you keep traveling down the Bible storyline, and you pop up into the story of Noah. Uh, what do you do with the story of Noah? You know, last year, a couple of movies came out. I think Noah came out last year. I'm going to ask if you saw Noah, but Noah has a moment in, in the, uh, the story there where, I, on the one hand, I appreciate theologically he came in touch with the sinfulness of man. So he realizes man is really, really sinful. What, what was so detached in the movie was what that sin was about. The sin in the, in the story of Noah, in, not in the Bible, but in the movie, was about how man was mistreating creation. 
he was destroying the earth and he was eating all these animals and mistreating the animals. And so Noah in the movie gets a little bit confused about what's God doing here. And he starts thinking God's killing all the humans. That's all he's doing. God's just killing all of them. He's going to kill all of us too, by the way, because he's trying to rescue the innocent animals. Uh, this is, you know, thanks Russell Crowe. This is the conclusion that Noah comes to in the movie. All right, that, this is what happens when you pick up a, a story and you detach it from what God had in mind in that story. See, because in that story is, a, is road signs pointing to Easter. You, you, you meet God in the story of Noah. You meet a God who's in control of everything. You meet a God who brings judgment Right, and you know, in the argument, and I'm not going to go down too far down this road, although I could preach in this, uh, that religious freedom argument of the God who doesn't discriminate. Okay, real quickly, how many people got on the ark? How many people were in the world? All right, God didn't build the ark for everybody, did he? Right, so I mean, you, so you got definitions for God, and then you come to the Bible and you find out, oh, I don't know if that's how God is. Now, listen, I'm not, we don't have to like or dislike ideas, but when you meet God, he is who he is. And so what was this flood? Somebody left the faucet on in heaven? It was a mistake, an accident? No, it was an act of judgment. You got introduced to a God who judged the whole world. But then you also got introduced to a God of mercy who rescued out of the judgments everybody on that ark. So this God is a God who judges, but who provides a means of rescue, right? That's that little sign there said, Easter, Easter, up ahead. All right, travel a little farther. Welcome to the story of Abraham, right? You drive up. And into this story comes a guy named Abraham, a guy minding his own heathen business. He's not a God worshiper. He's doing his own thing. And God shows up in his life and appears to him. And reveals himself to Abraham and makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant is a covenant where God does all the work. God makes the claims that the covenant requires and puts them on himself. And Abraham does nothing to contribute to the fulfillment of that except receive it by faith. Easter, 2,000 years ahead. That story is pointing to the story of Jesus Christ coming and the Easter that he would come and give us new life. Now entering the story of Exodus. All right, so we pull up into this story of the book of Exodus. All right, Easter is now 1,480 years down the road, and it is still telling us the story about Easter. Everything points to Easter. Now, if you pull these stories out of this road of revelation from God, uh, listen, this is, this is what you're going to end up doing, right? The highway of God's revelation, it has a destination. If you lose sight of the destination, then you turn all the people, the places, and the events into standalone moral lessons, which features what man must do to fix his life rather than what God has done. Right, when you walk away from the David and Goliath stories and, and you got a moral going on, isn't it interesting that all the morals have to do with what we could do, what we should do, and, and what we're supposed to be doing? Very seldom, if ever, 
Is it about God and what he's done? So when you read this passage, right? Remember this, this, this passage is about what God has done, isn't it? He speaks to Moses. He says, I appeared to Abraham. I established my covenant with them. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you as an inheritance. I will, I will, I will, I will. Show me all the stuff that man's doing in this passage, right? This is the trailer for Exodus. It's about what God has done. The gospel is about what God has done to rescue us. And we have this tendency to turn it into what we have to do to fix our own lives, to be acceptable to God, to become good enough. You may be totally foreign to the Bible, but I'm pretty sure you have this idea that this, this thing is like this moral measuring rod. And so what you do is you, you pick it up somehow and you measure yourself with it over and over and over again. Well, that measuring's not a bad thing if it leads you to look away from yourself to the one who would do something that you couldn't do. I measure myself. I'm too short. I better find somebody tall, and it ain't me. That's not a bad thing. But if you measure yourself and you say, I got some growing to do, I'm going to have to be bigger. I'm going to have to be better. I'm going to have to polish up my act. Well, then you've misused the Bible. You've turned everything into human moral effort. And one story after another in Scripture is saying the same thing. Look what God did for you. (laughs) Do you believe it? Abraham, Noah, Moses. Look what God has done, right? Eleven things are in this passage, and they're all about what God has done. The Exodus sign points to Easter. The story content is speaking in the categories that make or matter the most to us. These, These categories matter to us. This is on our list of trying to get life under the umbrella of happy. Every one of these conditions, right? Who's God to you? When, when you? when you arrive at Easter and you travel down this road to Easter, you meet God. The most important thing about Easter is not the Easter bunny. The most important thing about Easter is God. Who is God in this story? Right? You remember some interesting things, right? I mean, hold on to a little bit of the language from Exodus, even if you haven't read the book in a long time. Right? Remember the burning bush scene? Moses is trying to get introduced to this God. He's kind of, kind of a foreign thing to even Moses. And he meets God, and God introduces himself, and he pronounces his name to him, and he calls himself the I Am. Right? Do you remember that introduction? Burning bush, the I Am. I'm the God who's always existed. It's kind of a strange verb discussion title of God. I've always existed. I always am. I am. Fast forward. John chapter 8. Jesus of Nazareth speaks to the people of Israel. says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. 
have you seen Abraham? Remember our sign? Abraham was 2,000 years away from Christ. So 2,000 years ago, this guy Abraham, wait, 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 you're not even 50, man. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Is that bad grammar? <laughs> right? I mean, before Abraham was, I was. No, 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 no. The burning bush guy. Before Abraham, I am. I've always been. I'm the always existent, eternal God. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And that's, that's, that's revealing right there. Why would this group of Jews pick up stones to stone a guy who thought he was hanging around with Abraham a long time ago? Well, it wasn't because they thought he was a lunatic and he was insanely thinking he hung out with Abraham. Is because he introduced himself the way the God of the burning bush introduced himself to Moses. He says, I am. Back when Moses, Moses met me at the burning bush and Abraham met me when he lived. And now he's been manifest. In Mark chapter 14, so Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Right? This, this Jesus reaches back to the signpost. And this is helpful. You know, how, how do we get Easter? Well, you reach back to the signpost along the road that took you to this moment. And you pick up guys like Abraham. And you pick up sayings that went to Moses. And Jesus says, that's who I am. I'm the one that you've been waiting for all this time. Every signpost, every story was talking about me. That's who I am. Now listen, when we meet Jesus on Easter weekend, we meet the same God who is responsible for Noah's story. He's the same God. We meet the same God who when God calls a people to himself... He doesn't just throw a party and say, hey, so glad to see you guys. He gives them ten commandments. And, and, you know, apparently those ten commandments were pretty important deals. Apparently those ten commandments were non-negotiables. You know how I can tell? Because God was so serious about judging the breaking of those commands that he didn't even spare his own son when he judged him on the cross. See, all this idea about, let's invent a God who's just, he's kind of slow on judgment. He, that's just not God. He's not that way. Well, then explain Noah to me and explain the cross of Jesus Christ to me. In the Bible, God's judgment is non-negotiable. Do you understand? This is, this is what makes God a God of salvation. There's a condition that exists that we have offended God with our sin, and it's non-negotiable. God doesn't turn around and say, hey, listen, I know it was a bad day. You guys probably didn't mean it. Y'all been busy. Listen, it's cool. You know, I'll get over it. That's not the, you don't find that story anywhere in the Bible. When you meet God, and you meet God on Easter weekend, He's a God who judges sin, and there's no way around it, so much so that he sends his own son to receive that judgment. 
Listen, if anybody was going to get spared, wouldn't it be the Son of God? If there was going to be any negotiating in the back room, wouldn't it have been for the Son of God? But then that also becomes the basis for you and I understanding the incredible love of God as well. When Romans chapter 8 unpacks this judgment moment with God, it, it, it talks to us this way. and says, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? Right? Well, how does God spin that into our lives? He says, listen, you're freaking out worried whether I'm going to be God who cares for your needs. Well, how do you know I cared for your needs? Well, because I took the need for your forgiveness of sins and I put it on my own son and I judged him so you could receive grace. That's who God is in this story. Question, how are you facing the Egypt issues of life? There are some things that sit in your personal story. There are some things in your Egypt, that place of burden, that place of enslavement, that place where you're being controlled by things that you wish you could get out from underneath its thumb. How are you doing with that? I mean, be real. I mean, I know you're not, you're not making bricks in the desert. But did you, did you get undone this week? You get turned upside down by somebody saying something about you? By somebody in your world, somebody personal, important to you? You just can't get them to like you? You can't get them to be for you? I mean, it's Easter Sunday. More than likely, a lot of us, lot of us are going to be with family today. For some people, I guarantee you this is a miserable day because you're going to be around people who... <laughs> Sorry, you're going to be around people who've done you wrong. You're going to be around people for whom you have been the victim. They have said things about you. They have failed to support you. And you feel victimized by who they've been. And that is such a big thing in your head. You are underneath their thumb. Maybe not 430 years, but you get controlled by that. You can't seem to have a healthy view of yourself and your life because somebody said something that you just can't get it out of your head. Welcome to Egypt. Or maybe you're a person who doesn't give a rip about what anybody else has said, but you, you've got controlling habits in your life, right? You've got food issues, you've got drug issues and alcohol issues and gambling issues in your life that you'd love to be done with those things. You'd love it. It's destroying you. You give into it, you crave it, you run after it, but it turns on you and you hate it as much as you love it and it's a real strange relationship. And it's been going on and on and on for how many years now? And you lie about it and you cover up and you can't get rid of it, can you? 430 years, you'd like for that to go away. And then you are still under its thumb. Welcome to Egypt. Welcome to a land where you're going to get a diagnosis in your body. And no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to get out from underneath its thumb. And some of you here, if you lived your whole life battling with diabetes or some lifelong ailment, something comes, some heart disease comes, some cancer diagnosis comes, and fight it as much as you can fight it. At the end of the day, that thing won't lift its thumb off of your life. But how, how are we doing battling these things? Well, you meet this God in the New Testament. His name's Jesus Christ. 
And the Exodus points to this God who's still today coming to rescue people out of situations that they can't change, right? It says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What was God doing rescuing people from Egypt? Well, he was giving them a big, giant lesson in what it would look like when Jesus Christ came and liberated people to get out from underneath the thumb of their Egypt that was coming into their lives. It's the same story, right? Exodus is 1450 B.C. Isaiah, the prophet that he's quoting from, 720 B.C. Luke chapter 4, where this is written down, is 30 A.D. And it's the same message. God has come to rescue us. Easter is about God coming to rescue us from these conditions in Egypt, right? Question? How's your deliverance and rescue from these forces going? Do you feel free? Are you free? You feel out from underneath the control and the power of these things in your life? Or number four there, has your restless heart found the fulfillment of a covenant relationship with God? I just want you to be real. I don't want you to waste your trip to church today. Have you found God in such a way that you can stop crushing all the other people in your life? Raising the bar of expectation that your poor spouse has got to meet or your kids have got to make you feel a certain way and that you succeeded and you did something significant and you are somebody and you're the ultimate mom. Can you, can you stop strangling your kids to death because you hope so desperately that they're going to fix, that relationship's going to fix you, it's going to be enough for you. This is why marriages don't work so often because I married you just to be a wife but somewhere along the way I promoted you to God. Now you got to be God to me. You got to never fail me. You got to always say the right thing. You got to make my life feel like it's complete and happy. And if I don't feel that way, well, then it must be because you're doing something wrong. Well, you know, most of us are in marriages where we just married a human being. That's just what happened. <laughs> and then, you know, we got together and, and we had little human beings and they live with us. And God knows they're, they're not interested in getting promoted to God for us. <laughs> Friendships, whatever relationships. God made us for something more. He made us for a covenant relationship with him. Until I find that, I will just crush one relationship after another. Because my heart wants something bigger, and it can only be found in God. Now, here's my last thought. This fifth thing from this story of Exodus that points us to Easter. Are you living today with a meaningful anticipation of God's future promises in your daily life? 
Right right now, what's rescuing you from the mundane? What's rescuing you from the trouble? What's rescuing you from the way in which life feels? And listen, like most of us just, well, I'm so anticipating my next raise at work. You know, I'm just... Just things are going to, you know, we're going to be able to pay the bills differently. Babe. I'm just looking, I'm looking into the future and I'm going to get a raise. It's going to be so much better. Or, or you know, hey, uh, we've been shopping for a new car. We're going to get a new car. It's, you know, distracting. It's wonderful. Or, you know, a young person, you know, high school's miserable. It was for me at least. High school's miserable. And, but college, oh, college is coming. I can look forward to college. The college experience is going to rescue me. And if all that fails, well, maybe just, I don't know, maybe a week at Disney World, just rescue me. <laughs> right? Yeah, you, one of the most depressing moments. This was true. I, I mean, when I was a kid, my parents took us to Disney World uh, incessantly. One of the most depressing moments of your trip to Disney World is the last day, isn't it? Right? And that sense of we're about to drive away from, from the grounds. Why is that so depressing? Because I'm going back to hell. I had this brief moment, a savior for a week. But, you know, what if God knew that you and I need to look to something, that we live in a condition that's got Egypt-like categories for us, and we need to be able to look to something. It's just not Disney World that he had in mind. What if it's this? Come on, thing. There you go. Thank you. What if it's this, right? First Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, right? Again, this is what God has done. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My question, where, where do you get your hope? How are you importing hope right now into what feels like a hopeless situation? Well, God's plan was for us to have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, right? This land that God promised was a land of milk and honey. It's a land of blessing and good like no other land they'd ever experienced. And it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, one more. Can you advance that for me? Thank you, Tyler. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. That's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's that's what the Bible is about. That's all roads lead to Easter where souls can be saved. God rescues out of Egypt to illustrate to us we are in a condition in Egypt that we cannot set ourselves free from. But God is a God of mercy and loving kindness. He will come to you in Egypt And he will do all these things, miracles and signs, and liberate you and bring you into a relationship with himself. That's what Easter 
was about. And that's why Exodus is great to learn about because it helps us that when we arrive at Easter, we don't scratch our heads and go, wow, what's happening here? What's happening here is what happened in Exodus. This God has come to us. And he's come to you this morning. You still, don't, 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 don't turn here. This is, this is not good news. This is tragic news, right? We just watched the movie trailer, Exodus chapter 6, all the way to verse 8 of chapter 6. This is what God's going to do. This is what God's going to do. This is what God's going to do. And then verse 9 says this, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He said all this to them. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Good news was at their door. Liberation was upon them. God was coming to rescue them. And they were more convinced about their broken world and their hopelessness than they were in trusting God. Listen, I I hope that's not you this morning. This story, this Exodus story, it's It's the gospel according to Moses. It's the same gospel story. It's God come to rescue us. And you can hear it like they heard it, but the question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you so convinced that your life is so out of control, so broken, so irreparable, that even listening this morning, you say, "There's, there's no hope for me? Or... Is something in your heart right now going, no, no, there is hope for me. There's hope for me, not because of me, but because of a God who's like that. A God who will come into my Egypt. He'll come invade. He'll come and rescue me out of it. He'll come do all that. So it's not about what I've got to do to fix this. It's about what he'll do to fix this. Yes. Right, that was the gospel in the New Testament, and it's the gospel in the Old Testament as well. It doesn't change. It's still about what God does to rescue us and to bring us to himself. I think my favorite passage in the New Testament, maybe not my favorite, but it's a good one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And then he says to us, and he has given to us this ministry of reconciliation. And the Apostle Paul had that ministry, and I'm going to stand and tell you the same thing that Apostle Paul said to his audience. I'm going to say it to you today. I beg you, on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. That's what Easter's about. It's about being called out of Egypt and reconciled to God. That relationship that he wants to have with each and every one of us. Now think carefully because you can have it. Anybody in this room who's had that relationship, it wasn't because they got it together, pulled it together, became more moral, crossed their own Red Seas, did their own miracles. It's because they just put their faith in this God. You can do that this morning. You can right now put your faith in the God who's come to rescue you. Easter is about that God. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a a pretty simple prayer. 
a prayer that just gives your life back to God and lets him rescue you out of whatever Egypt you're in right now. Now, keep this in mind as I pray this prayer, if it really is what you want. When you read the book of Exodus, it's not just about getting out of Egypt. That's a big mistake. So but the prayer I'm about to pray is not just about you getting out of trouble. Exodus is about getting out of Egypt in order to be reconciled to God. And that's what this prayer is about. It's about getting out of your trouble right now so that you can be reconciled to God. It's not, God, get me out of this mess so I can just live however I want. No, get me out of this mess, God, and, and I want to live for you. And I want to follow you the rest of my life. Let's stand up together. Lord, what a privilege it is today to be with family and friends and relatives, Lord, gathered here this morning. Lord, thank you that Easter Sunday morning remains a special event to so many of us. But Lord, we don't want to be here in a church looking through things in a Bible and miss the point. Lord, we don't want to come here today, maybe even like those who followed you more convinced about death than we are about resurrection. And God, my heart goes out to some who are here this morning who are very in touch with what, it like, what it's like to live in the land of Egypt, controlled by, burdened by, worn out by, enslaved by issues and people, habits, but what good news is here for us, was here for them, it's here for us this morning. The God of salvation, Yahweh, the one true God, has been on a mission from the beginning. From the moment of Eden on, he's been on a mission. God, your mission was to seek and to save that which was lost, to come and rescue us out of our affliction. God, you are here this morning on that mission. So, Lord, would you rescue here this morning? Rescue out of Egypt this morning. This morning, just, I'm going to give you a chance to pray and talk to God for a moment. If you'd like to follow God out of your Egypt, if you'd like to be saved by the God who saves, if you'd like to put your trust and your hope in the God who promises you a future, and who forgives sin and who restores you to himself. If that's where you are this morning, you'd like to do that. Just pray this prayer with me. You speak it to God. He's here. Say this to God. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. My life is broken chapter after chapter of struggle, discouragement, difficulties, failed relationships. God, I need you. This morning, God, I recognize I can't fix me. I can't. I've tried. And sometimes I haven't even tried. 
God, I hear this morning, and I hear you this morning. I hear you calling me and calling my name. I hear that you've come to rescue me like you did these folks in Egypt. God, this morning, I want to be restored to you. God, this morning, I want to turn away from my own life, my own way, and I want to put my trust and my hope in you. I want the future that you have for me. I want to be reconciled to you more than anything, and I also want whatever you have for me in the future. I want to live in the land of promise that you have for me. So this morning, Easter 2015, Lord, I invite you to come save me, rescue me. I give you my life, and I will follow you from this day forward. In Jesus' name. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand. 